listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, hello to you, uh, if I haven't met you. My name's Mark, and uh, we are into our first week of our Lent series. Uh, And if you've got one of the booklets, uh, you'll see that the theme of this Lent series is Bloom. And we're going to get to that a little bit later. Um, But Lent is something which we don't have to uh, do. It's something that actually uh, is not in the Bible. Um, But it's something which can be helpful to, I guess, focus our attention uh, as we remember Jesus' work on the cross. And as we, in a sense, symbolically move towards uh, Easter, it's a great focusing tool. So however you're doing that, whether you're doing the readings, whether you're fasting from something, um, whether you're going to come to the prayer, we're going to pledge an hour, uh, my real prayer is that by the end of this, that you'll be closer to Jesus. And many of you are reading the readings, um, and I want to, I guess, preach out of a number of the readings this week. Uh, But I'm going to begin with one, uh, which I think came later in the week, from 2 Corinthians uh, 5.20. This is Paul uh, speaking to the church in Corinth. Uh, Timothy also signs on. Uh, Timothy was his helper in ministry. says this, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, God made him, this is talking about Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, speaking of humanity, so that we in him, Jesus, might become the righteousness of God. In this verse, we can feel the passion and urgency of Paul and Timothy in imploring the hearers to be reconciled to God. Now, this urgency and this passion actually flows from Paul's understanding as someone who set his life up to be anti-God and anti, well, not anti-God, but anti what the church was doing and anti the message of Jesus. Yet, he was someone who had encountered the risen Christ on a road in Syria and came to understand that grappling with sin, which is sandwiched in the middle of this verse, That sin had actually separated us from God. And understanding sin is vitally central to our healing and the healing of the world. And interestingly, when you talk about sin, instantaneously it can seem something that is a heavy topic. But as I was preparing for this sermon this week, um, I saw a video uh, on the internet, which I realized is like, I used to talk about movies and reference like movies, and now I just seem to reference Um, strange videos that I saw on YouTube. But anyway, uh, I saw a video, which I think was like linked through CBS News in America, and it was actually from Queensland, and it was a video from a veterinarian clinic uh, in Queensland where someone had brought in, I didn't know if it was wild or if it was a pet, a python. And this particular python um, was ill. You didn't really understand why this python had been brought in. But it was uh, anesthetized, it was, it was knocked out, um, still alive, but it had been put to sleep. Um, and they were doing this surgical procedure on it. So you had like several vets in the room, and you had one was holding the tail of this long python, 
Um, someone else was holding its mouth, which still frightened me a little bit because they've got teeth, but they're holding the teeth, but the thing was knocked out. And then you had sort of two other vets, and what the other vets were doing was they were sort of sticking these implements, these tongs, and these are like surgical tongs, they're long tongs, which are like barbecue tongs, but are much cleaner and very thin into the snake's mouth. Another person was holding a light. And you're watching them sort of fumbling around for a while. They're like, oh, is that it? Oh, it's almost like watching someone fishing. They're trying to get something. And then they get something, and I couldn't work out what it was. It's something very sort of small and white. Um, but then they're like, I got it. And they're like, just use your hand. So one of the vets, she gets her hand, and she's pulling. And then it sort of turns into this snake tug of war, where the two uh, vets at the front are holding onto this thing inside of the snake, and then the vet behind is pulling it, and it's sort of going in two directions. And think, what is in this snake? You know, some people, you know, this morning when I was telling this story, were speculating, was it a creature? Had it eaten something? It had eaten something, but something very unusual, which you saw all of a sudden start to come out of the snake's mouth. It was white initially. I think, what is this? And then I noticed that actually there was like red on it. I'm like, is this blood? And then I realized, hang on, it's some kind of pattern. And then all of a sudden, in this moment, which was weirdly satisfying, you began to see what was, is that a little bit of cloth? Hang on, is that a tea towel? And then slowly, an entire beach towel comes out of this snake. And what was interesting was, what I thought was a big python actually wasn't as big a python, but its entire body had been distorted and distended by this actual swallowing of a beach towel. And finally, this snake was free. Now, what was interesting was this process of ridding this snake of this impediment, which had distorted it, which was going to kill it if it wasn't taken out actually sent the veterinarians into a kind of celebration that you normally see when someone wins an Olympic gold medal. And they were hugging each other, and they were incredibly joyful. And the reason I tell this story is, in a sense, it's the same with sin. The sin is ridding of something, but where we're actually heading to, the joy of Easter Sunday, is an incredibly joyful moment. But when we talk about sin, we have to realize that it's a word which has fallen out of vogue. Yet it's vital to understanding the human condition. Many today choose to make a division between religion and spirituality, preferring spirituality, which seems shorn of what are seen as the negative and out-of-date concepts of religion, such as sin. Now, this is partially understandable, for nothing is worse than the religious hypocrite who obsesses over the sin of others while ignoring the plank in their own eye. This is something we read this week in the Lent readings when Jesus warned about religious hypocrisy. Yet Jesus also devoted a huge part of his teaching and ministry to alert his listeners to the caustic effect that sin has upon society and the individual. Remove a robust understanding of sin from our faith and we fly blind. The English preacher and writer John Stott said this, the very word sin has in recent years dropped from most people's vocabulary. It belongs to the traditional religious phraseology, which at least in the increasingly secularized West is now declared by many to be meaningless. 
Moreover, if and when sin is mentioned, it's most likely to be misunderstood. Yet sin is an essential part of the Easter story. Without it, the Lenten journey, which we've begun, becomes simply just some fasting and reading and staying away from chocolate. Understanding sin is not just essential to get your head around faith, but rather to understand human nature and the world. For when we scroll through the news, you'll be confronted with a huge variety of issues from political battles, personal tragedies, conflicts and crimes. And behind all of them actually is the issue of sin. And whilst it's fallen out of vogue seemingly in secular Australian culture, it hovers behind every issue, haunting us as we ignore it. And much of our culture can be understood as a response to sin. Now the strange thing is, when John Stott wrote those words, which I think were in the 80s or 90s, it was true. Sin had seemingly disappeared. And when I began my ministry and would preach at the time as a youth pastor and a youth worker, sometimes doing things in schools, it was almost like I had to set up fireworks to even get people to realize that there was such a concept as sin. But a huge cultural change is happening at the moment, where weirdly, sin is all over the culture, although the word is not used. If you look for it in other guises, you will hear about sin in media, in the news, on the internet, in our commentary. You'll hear about in human resources meetings. You'll hear about it as you watch a sports broadcast. You'll hear about it on Hollywood award shows. Weirdly, we've just crossed, I think, some threshold where possibly with using other words, you'll hear about sin more in the culture than you actually now hear it in the church. Strange moment. Part of the confusing thing about living in our post-Christian culture, which imagines that it's moved beyond Christianity, is that we have no singular way of understanding sin. No unified approach to rectifying its damage or getting to the root of its existence. Rival battles of, of what sin is do war against each other on our screens, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our, in our politics. So before I sort of get into, I guess, a biblical understanding of sin, what I would like to do is outline four major ways in which our culture understands sin and attempts to remedy it. Now there's four. Midweek there was 11, I had 11. Uh, by the weekend I had seven. And then I woke up this morning and thought, this is just way too much, we'll be here at nine o'clock tonight. So I cut it down to the top four. Before we jump into them, a warning. It can be a dog's breakfast. Why? Because our contemporary culture lurches now from a total disregard for sin to a judgmental, shaming, condemning attitude that leaves no room for grace nor resurrection. The philosopher Alistair McIntyre wrote of our approach to morality in the West, noting that language and the appearances of morality persists even though the substance of morality has to a large degree been fragmented and then in part destroyed. In other words, what, what McIntyre is saying is that much of our contemporary morality, our approach to sin, contains echoes and memories of a Christian approach to sin, but also contains departures from a Christian approach to sin. To use an example, it's like trying to put water into a vase that's been smashed and ground into the carpet. 
This is a huge part of our problem. We can think we're being Christian and moral in our approach to sin, following, I guess, visions of, of how to deal with sin that seem Christian, but which then lead us into greater problems. So here is my chart. Once 11, now 4. They are horizontal. So these are all stories that our culture tells about why there is sin. The first one um, answers the question of why there is sin. So we're going horizontal from the top. Well, sorry, what is sin rather? What is sin is it's injustice, it's bigotry, it's hatred. And why is there this sin? Well, because of narrow-mindedness, toxic power structures. Well, what's the solution? We need to progress beyond that narrow-mindedness to a social utopia. How do we do this? Well, we deconstruct toxic power structures and we use shame for people who are still narrow-minded and we educate people in how to get with the program and to progress with us to the social utopia. Now, the initial champions of this in our culture, really, this comes out of the humanities department at university and that's pretty much an arts degree right there for you right now in 40 seconds. Now, they're going into other areas, and I'll get into that in a second. Another story that's told about sin um, is this one. What is sin? Well, it's repression of your desires. It's a lack of personal freedom where you get to do what you want to do. Well, why can't you then find your desires and do what you want to do? Well, you're being held back by what? By rules, traditions, and in particular, religion. And so the solution is for you to pursue individual pleasure and happiness. The tools of doing this is more freedom, self-expression. Now, who are the champions of this? I would say the entertainment industry, everything from rock and roll, particularly in its early forms, from Little Richard to the Sex Pistols. This is Hollywood. Although, if you look at contemporary entertainment, what's actually happening is the one above it is starting to win. This is why the Academy Awards is getting weird. The third story is this one. What is sin? Well, sin is bad genetics. It's a lack of evolution. The fact that you do what you do is that you really don't have that much autonomy. You think you're an individual, but you're not. And the mistakes that you make are actually because that you're deficient. You're deficient genetically. Some of you steal, not because of a moral choice, but actually because you're pre-wired to have kleptomania. And so this is sin. Why is there sin? It's because it's because of nature. It's because of the environment. I read an article a few years ago when I had read about how some um, English football fans had rioted. I think they were in France during the European Championships. And this article was saying, well, the reason this happens is that some people are pre-wired to have what is called a hooligan gene. And that the article was suggesting that this gene was particularly high amongst English working class men. And so, the solution to this is for us to evolve as a species. Now, that can take a long time. So the tools that this proposes are therefore education, in particular technology, and programming of people's behavior. And this flows out of the university, but less so the humanities, more so the sciences, but very much this is the mantra now of big tech. The last one, um, that I have here in the top four is, well, what is sin? Sin is a lack of self-esteem. Why is there sin? 
because of negative attitudes and particular personal brokenness. The solution to this, therefore, is personal success. Achieve your dreams. How do we get there? What are the tools? Affirmation. You need lots of affirmation from the outside and also to yourself. You just need to have a positive attitude to work hard. And this very much, it's changing now, and it's changed in the last few years, but this has been the dominant uh, sort of story that we're told about sin in our education. Uh, not so much university, but particularly from kindergarten to high school. Now, looking at these charts, we can then wonder into which stream our personal morality fits. The truest answer would probably be most of them. And that's the problem. Most people in the West are living with the daily effects of sin, yet have a broken way of dealing with their consequences. And sin is pervasive, because like a noxious weed, it seeds, sows a seed that is destruction. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And the word picture here is an investment or a trade where you wish to gain something, yet you come out with everything that you brought to the table touched with the spirit of death. And so sin has a habit of turning programs and efforts aimed at morality into further extensions of sin. As the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so while all of these, interestingly, have some biblical seeds. Do we want a world where injustice and hatred and bigotry is removed? Absolutely. Is that a biblical vision? Yes. Do we want freedom from restrictive rules that bind us to a pointless religious constraints? There's a, there's a biblical origin in that thought. Are we as people sometimes constrained by the environments that we're in? Are we more predictable than we actually think? Yes. Do good people do things in bad environments? Yes. Are we often driven by the sides of us, which is almost just like our fleshly desires and do stuff that we don't want to do? Absolutely. And do many of us feel a sense of personal brokenness, a lack of self-esteem? And is not the message of God that he loves us and that you're created in the image of God? Absolutely. But when you take God out of these things, they go rogue. And so if you look in the right-hand column, these have side effects. The top one, attempting to bring a more cohesive and just society, increasingly is just creating more and more division, endless culture war, political tribalism. When you look at this desire to pursue happiness, to do what you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, that's all well and good, but who defines what hurts someone? What happens if someone turns up and wants to come to your house party, but they've just been in an area where there is the coronavirus and they're not feeling very well? Do you not let them come in? Who decides? Who decides whether they come in or not? What is harm is actually where there's this battle here. And so what this can happen is that it just turns into hyper-individualism. And there's a loss of society. This concept that we need to improve and that some people are just genetically inferior and that technology and education can get us there can actually end up with a loss of our humanity where technology takes over more and more of our lives and increasingly a loss of our freedom as we are programmed into other people's desires for our lives. 
And the self-esteem movement, even according to those who originally designed it, has ended up as a disaster, turning us into narcissists who are anxious and often passive. Because if we have esteem for doing nothing, and you can't give yourself esteem, esteem is actually something given externally when you achieve something. And the pure concept of self-esteem actually is a contradictory lie that we begin to realize the more that we practice it. And despite all of these contemporary examples from our diverse culture, they all point back to an ancient truth. And that's the devil's exchange in the garden. The swapping out of life with God for autonomy from God and separation from life with Him. And sin causes us to make this devastating decision again and again. And so whether we're running into sin to embrace it or trying to run from it, or even trying to rectify it. Without God, we simply pour fuel upon the fire. Because when we don't make God everything, we have to become everything. And that's what our culture's doing. And when we have to be everything, we have to be the solution to ours and the world's sin. And this is a burden we as individuals, we as a culture, and we as a world simply cannot carry. To bring us back to a biblical response, at this point, I want to just mention that this is the reason that we're on this journey. That where we're heading from here is to the cross, where sin is undone. And this is prefaced in the readings that we read this week. In Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4, in one of our Lent readings, when confronted by Nathan the prophet over his sinful relationship with Bathsheba, King David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. That statement, have mercy on me, O oh God. So simple a cry, so profoundly rich with humility that can only come when we're truly confronted with our own sin. And in pastoring, I've seen those moments. I've sat with people when they've made horrible, horrible, life-altering decisions that were sinful. And the realization of how they have fundamentally messed stuff up ruined marriages, ruined families, done things which they know can't be undone. And that moment when they break and that realization comes upon them, there's something that is fascinating that I've found in those moments, which is a profound holiness. When you actually finally meet someone. I remember early, early in my ministry, I was very young in my early 20s. I just started in ministry. And an older man who I'd looked up to came to me and shared and was confessing something which was a really serious moral failing, which had profound implications for him and his family. And I remember this weird moment of standing there in the, in the car park behind the church. I didn't know what to do, I didn't know what to say. I had no words, but I didn't need to have words. I remember he came up to me and apologized this man who I'd looked up to, 
who was big and strong and tall and seemed to have all the answers, but had become a blubbering mess and just basically hugged me. And we stood there. And I said, I didn't need to do anything because that was a holy moment when he'd reached a David-like moment. And that for him was an entry point, a gateway to something that happens at that moment, which is not just for people who get to that point like him where it's very raw and unavoidable. And when we realize how we've played a part in the great system of sin, when we grasp how far we fall short of the glory of God, how much we sin, there can only be one response. Repentance. Repentance is the first stop on this train journey towards the cross. For repentance is actually return. Repentance is the road back to God. Its literal meaning in Greek is making an about-face turn, of turning home. In Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal son, ashamed and defeated, trudges home, fearing condemnation, mockery, and punishment. Yet what's the response from the God symbolized by the Father? It's not those things. It's a wild, shameless, sprinting embrace of love. The prophet Joel in this week's Lenten reading speaks the word of the Lord saying, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Repentance is return. Repentance is so powerful because in a world increasingly of illusion and fakery, where we project an image to the world that's always perfect and wonderful, whether we're doing that in social situations, online, in our workplace, repentance is actually accepting reality. Tim Keller notes that the Christianity contains a kind of equality unseen in the wider culture's drive and desire for equality. That's the recognition that as Paul writes in the book of Romans that we all fall short of the glory of God. None of us can claim to be superior for we're all sinners. We all need grace. We cannot rely on anything but God. And repentance is the freeing recognition of this reality. Repentance is accepting the reality of how we fall short of God's standards that we don't deserve his grace. It's also accepting that he gives us his grace and when we repent and choose to follow him, that's our gift. Repentance is also accepting that we need to be remade. After being confronted by his sin, David in verses 10 and 12 of the Psalm we just read says this, incredible, beautiful statement. Create in me a pure Heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Repentance is the handing over of the reins of our projects, our desires, our dreams for ourselves and giving them to God and allowing Him to drive our lives, allowing ourselves to be remade to His plans recognizing that change first begins within and that our issue is primarily, first of all, a spiritual issue. And as our friend Joshua Butler, who we had speak a couple of years ago at Red, says, the heart of the matter is actually a matter of the heart. And so therefore, repentance requires the rending of hearts. 
That return to God must be genuine and heartfelt. It can't just be this simple mental decision, a philosophical choice, but rather a full human experience that involves our minds, our hearts, our emotions, the whole of us. Prophesying the word of God, Joel writes that the return must be accompanied with fasting and weeping and mourning. Joel says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, which we also read this week, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. Now to rend is to break something up. And Jews in time of mourning, then and now, rip their clothes. But Joel has asked them not to rip their clothes and do something external. He's asking them to break up their hearts. Now this is the point where the Lent theme of bloom begins to intersect and come into focus on the horizon. Hosea 10, 12 puts it in this way. So righteousness for yourself, reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. For it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. And when you see some ground which has actually gotten hardened, that's not a process that happens overnight. In my backyard, there's a bed which, when put down, was supple, movable, dirt. And it wasn't like within an hour later, it was hard. What happened was days of sun, lack of rain, slowly takes supple dirt, which a child could move around, and actually turns it into something almost like concrete. And that's a process of what can happen to our hearts. It doesn't happen in a moment. It happens over time. Some of us, that's all we've ever known. A hardened heart, perhaps as a self-protective device. Other people, it just happens slowly, sitting in the pew, coming to church for years, seemingly doing the right things, while slowly our hearts are hardened. Other times, it can be hardening around an issue which we would only give to God, a hurt, somewhere has someone has hurt us. Or it could be a sin that we just want to keep going where we have one foot in the church and one foot in the world and that foot in the world is concretizing and becoming hardened soil. So we can't save ourselves, only Jesus can. Our part to play, we can't do Easter Sunday. We can't do Good Friday. What we can do is to actually break up the hard ground of our hearts. For the seeds of righteousness wants to bloom in your life, the season that he wants to bring, the fruit that he wants to harvest can only come when that ground is broken up through repentance. Now, this means that repentance is not a downer. This is not a heavy thing. This is not something that only broken people do. That's what the devil wants to trick you. Now we have to be very aware at this moment and attuned to the fact that as soon as we talk about sin and repentance, that quickly the devil can come in. What is the devil's name? The devil is the father of lies and the accuser. And so when the Holy Spirit's convicting in a beautiful way, which is moving you towards restoration and resurrection, the devil can come in and flip what begins as the conviction of the Holy Spirit and swap it out for condemnation, for self-hatred whispering lies alongside the promises. 
But there's none of that here in what Scripture is saying to us. Rather, repentance is the way forward. Self-hatred and condemnation is an extra hardening of the ground. The German writer Basilius Schlink says this, Yes, those who repent are truly alive. For after weeping over their sins, they break out in a rejoicing and singing that is unknown to other hearts. The joy of forgiveness, no other joy can compare in depth and height. The joy of redemption that far surpasses all other happiness. Do you hear that? Those who repent can experience a joy and freedom that those who never repent will never feel. The devil wants you to hold back and not repent, fearing what it may bring. But actually, it's the path to joy and happiness in God. So weirdly, I knew that starting this sermon on sin could seem like a massive downer. But actually, this is where it gets exciting because repentance is a key which opens a door to new possibilities. It's the cleaning of a house spotlessly before you then refit it with all of your wonderful things. And the most exciting thing is that at this moment where God has this congregation, where God has read, where God has the church in our city, in our nation, and in the world at the moment, there is actually this beautiful, hidden move of repentance happening that I've experienced and seen face-to-face, talking to people all around the world in emails, as I've met them on multiple different continents now, where God has taken a bunch of people into a move of repentance, many of them just in the quietness of their bedrooms. And why I'm excited about that is at the same time, I've also read history of how God renews his church. They always begin with a move of repentance. The Welsh revival, which changed the face of that nation in incredible supernatural ways, begins when a handful, a dozen or so of young adults, one night at a service, at a service exactly like this, with less people, all of a sudden, after the service, were led into repentance. For repentance leads to renewal. You can never get to Easter Sunday without the stop at repentance. And a repentant heart changes a life, and a repentant church changes a nation. Arthur Wallace says in his book, In the Day of Thy Power, To break up the fellow ground of our hearts means to bring them to a humble and contrite state before God. For this is the only state of heart that God can revive, the only state that is ready for the reign of revival. God's spirit can come, God can pour down his gifts on us, but if rain hits that hardened bed in my garden, I've watched it, it simply runs off. Rain on broken up ground, which contains seeds, is ripe for growth. So this week, now is the time. Some of us are like that python with a beach towel stuck in us, fighting to get it out, having to be anesthetized to actually have work done on us, walking around with something which is clogging us up, a burden of sin that God does not want us to carry which weirdly, we can just protect. But God is a good, good father, as we're about to sing. 
He's calling us to return to him, to be reconciled with him. He wants to do profound things this Easter period. He wants to change lives. And there's been people in this room for weeks and weeks and perhaps months have been edging closer to coming forward and giving the whole of their lives to God. Weeks and months, there's been people who there's parts that you want to keep under your own control and authority, but God's saying, put all the keys on the table before me. Some of you are fighting over things and holding things which simply just need to be brought and worked out, not in your mind through endless thinking and speculating and posturing and positing, but actually just through the tears of repentance. Repentance sometimes is as simple as saying, God, I cannot do this by myself.